You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. The following is a recording of the Ayn Rand Institute's Philosophy for Living on Earth webinar series. Sign up to attend the next webinar live at bit.ly forward slash ARI webinars. Is Altruism Good? by Ben Baer. Welcome to Philosophy for Living on Earth, uh, coming to you live from the Ayn Rand Institute. This is a weekly webinar series exploring life's big questions and answers to those questions from the perspective of the philosophy of Ayn Rand. Uh, my name is Ben Baer, and I'm your host this week. Our big question for today is, is altruism good? Interesting question, I think. Now, the format for these sessions is that I'm going to give a presentation for about 20 minutes, and then we'll open it up for Q&A and discussion from the general audience. At that point, I'm going to be joined by my colleague here at ARI, Elon Giorno, who's going to be moderating the Q&A and uh, maybe joining in in the answers as well. By the end of today's webinar, my hope is that you're going to have a better understanding of Ayn Rand's answer to the question, is altruism good? Uh, I find her answer provocative and compelling, and I hope you find it at the very least interesting to learn what her reasons are uh, for this view. So is altruism good? Well, how does this question even come up? Who talks about something called altruism? Well, maybe you've heard that there is a recent uh, cultural intellectual movement that's called effective altruism. This is a viewpoint that's championed uh, by uh, philosophers and activists alike, uh, people such as Peter Singer, William McCaskill. Uh, it encourages people to go out and do really careful empirical evidence-based research to find out the way, the best way to spend the most of their money possible to help the largest number of people in the most effective way possible. Sometimes it even encourages people to go out and make as much money as they can, say, by becoming an investment banker, just so they can give it all away or give as much of it as possible away, saving only the most barest minimum, the barest minimum for themselves. Um, and if you think about it, there are a lot of people in the world who are uh, living in very uncomfortable material circumstances. And this philosophy, effective altruism says, there's so many of those that none of us is justified in being comfortable ourselves. So the implication is that most of us are living unethical lives. If we spend any money on our comfort and on our enjoyment, anything over and above kind of the bare necessities. Now, what is it that motivates a viewpoint like this? Well, we could talk about the arguments that are given by philosophers but I'm not gonna do that unless anybody wants to ask questions about them. Uh, take it for granted that I don't think these arguments actually work philosophically. Um, and frankly, the people who, uh, who practice this idea of effective altruism, who do all this research in order to help out people overseas who are much less comfortable themselves, often haven't done it. They don't practice this philosophy because they've read these philosophical arguments uh, they do it, I think, because of some more common attitudes, which I am going to comment on. I'm going to focus on some common confusions that I think make people susceptible to the arguments of the effective altruists. So one of the common confusions that I want to talk about is just what is altruism to begin with? Often part of what draws people into this philosophy is confusion about what the idea even means. So what exactly is altruism? I want to start by making a note about what it is not. And uh, when Ayn Rand comments on altruism, what is she not commenting on? Well, one thing that's really important is that altruism is not the same thing as benevolence or generosity or just any kind of helping somebody. And there's a couple of different ways, I think, to make it clear that these are not the same thing. And so uh, when Ayn Rand evaluates altruism, she's not evaluating benevolence or generosity in the same way. One important point 
is that, well, altruism is usually opposed to egoism or to selfishness. Um, but selfishness and egoism aren't opposed to benevolence or generosity. And that's because the interests of other people can be centrally important to your own self-interest. Um, and if you think about this, if you have loved ones, if you have friends or family, uh, you want to see them be happy. And the work that you do to help them out in life, that's the price that you pay for helping to achieve your own happiness. Now, I don't think that's true of just any old person you help. It makes a difference whether we're talking about someone who's important to you, someone who shares your values and interests, or if it's just some kind of stranger. But the point here is that if you're helping someone else because you love them, because they're close to you, because it's in your interest to do it as you judge, that certainly isn't altruism. It's maybe benevolence, it's love, it's friendship, but it's not the same thing as altruism. And to clarify that even further, to understand why the relationship that you have with a friend or a loved one is not the same thing as altruism, I want to make one second point under this heading of showing why altruism is not the same as friendship or love or benevolence. And that's to observe the point that the most consistent altruists out there are people who actually demand that you sacrifice your own loved ones, your own closest personal relationships to the interests of strangers. And there's a several different examples that you could give here. So consider, for example, one of the most classic examples uh, from religion. What is it that Jesus Christ asks his followers to do in the Gospels? He says, give up everything you have, including your wife, your husband, your friends. Come follow me. That's the true path to be holy. And that is the path that, in fact, priests and nuns follow. That's part of why they practice celibacy, because they see love for friends and especially for spouses as distracting from the sacrifice that matters. But it's not just a religious point. Uh, you see this, for example, in a secular viewpoint like Karl Marx, who says we should even abolish the bourgeois family because it's much too much associated with the idea of bourgeois property. In other words, it's, it's too selfish and it distracts you from the cause of proletarian revolution. Or let's go back to uh, Peter Singer. He's the one who's the advocate of effective altruism. He thinks that it's immoral to spend substantial resources making your children happy, giving them a good education, taking them on uh, vacations to have fun. It's immoral to do that if there are children or other people around the world who you might not know, but who are dying from malaria. Just think of all the different people you could, you could save from death by malaria by spending money on mosquito nets for strangers with the money that you spend otherwise uh, just trying to keep your children happy. Uh, and that kid, that extra kidney you've got, uh, you don't actually need it either. Even if you, you are worried that someday you might need to give it as a transplant to one of your own family members, uh, Singer actually counsels and celebrated people who did give up that extra kidney to strangers because that's, that is true concern for the needs of other strangers. That's what altruists demand. They actually don't care about the goodwill or the benevolence or the love that you have to people who are close to you. Uh, they think people who concern for people who are close to you is is actually selfish. So they admit the point, the first point that I made. They concede the point that concern for the people who are close for you is actually in your interest. And as a result, they say you shouldn't do it. You shouldn't act on it. You should act on a selfless, disinterested kind of concern for random strangers around the world. So if altruism isn't the same thing as benevolence or generosity or love that you express uh, to people who are close to you, what then exactly is it? And I think that what emerges from the examples that I just gave uh, 
is that altruism is it's not so much about helping certain other people because you know your friends and your family are other people it's about sacrifice it's about giving up it's about especially giving up things that are close to you it's about sacrificing your self-interest it's about sacrificing the self and we're going to talk a little bit more later about what exactly that means not just to sacrifice your interests but to sacrifice your actual self i think what that really means at the end is something more profound than what most people often suspect and so we'll say something about that but let's let's think about what it what it means when we evaluate altruism if this is what altruism is really calling for so we talked about what altruism is what's wrong with it why would anybody think there's anything wrong with it? As it happens, uh, there are some reasons to think it's not so good. And uh, I want to survey now uh, some of the kinds of reasons that Ayn Rand gave in answering this question in the negative, that it is not a good thing, that there is something wrong with it, even that it is evil. So one, I think, important perspective on why it's no good is because especially if you look at the kind of activities that altruism commonly praises and the people that it praises, it's not really concerned with achieving positive good so much as it is with giving things up. And those are distinguishable. So consider, for example, who gets moral credit according to the philosophy of altruism and to some of these altruists we've talked about. Who are the true moral saints of altruism? I mean, I think that if you had to pick one above all others, and I used an image of her in the title slide, it would be Mother Teresa. She's, I think, universally regarded by altruists and by anybody who shares their kind of conventional view of morality, she's regarded as the saint and she's actually a literally a literal saint because of it. So why does she get this moral credit according to altruism? Well, she is ministered to the poorest of the poor in, in the slums of Calcutta, India. Uh, they're, by the way, already, usually they were already close to death. So she operated hospices for them uh, and administered to their most immediate pains and needs. Okay, that's what Mother Teresa gets all the credit for. But how can, why does that mean uh, that altruism isn't actually concerned with achieving any positive goods. Well, who are the actual greatest benefactors of humankind? Who are the ones who actually help the largest number of people raise themselves out of poverty over the longest period of time? And it's instructive to look at the example of India, uh, where people did live in dire poverty mass numbers of people did live in dire poverty up until relatively recently, up until especially, say, the early 1990s. Uh, India had been under the weight of an oppressive regulatory socialistic regime, but at the early, in the early 1990s, they started to lift a lot of the controls. They started to allow for foreign investment and foreign trade, and the entrepreneurs came into the country. Tech entrepreneurs, for example, Bill Gates, Microsoft opened up uh, its first campus uh, in India in the early 1990s after these changes were made. Well, the difference that it made to a country like India was dramatic. Suddenly people who used to have no options were able to work in call centers. They were able to become programmers. They were able to make a life for themselves and lift themselves up out of stagnation. And this spread prosperity throughout the country. And it still has a long way to go, but keep in mind where it was coming from. And it's not just India. The similar kind of phenomena has been observed all over the world where entrepreneurs and where capitalism has, uh, has spread. Poverty has been reduced. Prosperity has, has increased. But people like Bill Gates and people like the other entrepreneurs who've created the products that add value to our life and who've, as a result, also created economic opportunity for people who work building these products, they don't get any moral credit, according to altruism, 
for creating this worldwide industry that's lifted people out of, out of poverty, even though they've actually helped many, many more people over the long run, and not just by administering their, to their needs and dulling their pain in the final moments of their life, but by making it such that this kind of pain and this kind of suffering would not happen in the first place. But they don't get any moral credit for it, according to altruism. Why? Well, because according to altruism, you only get moral credit if you're giving something up. And of course, people like Gates, by creating valuable products and opportunities for other people, they were offering a trade of a value for a value. And so they profited from it. They offered a value to others. Others saw it was valuable. Others were willing to pay for it. And as a result, Bill Gates profited. So the altruists don't actually care about who's created the most benefit for others. What's salient to them is, has someone given something up? Mother Teresa clearly gave something up. She didn't really help that many people in the long run. Bill Gates didn't give anything up. He profited immensely. But even though he helped vastly more people than Mother Teresa ever did, he gets no credit. So I think that says something important and significant about what it is altruism is really about. It's not really about uh, concern for benefits to other people. It's mainly concerned with giving up. And I should mention, even in the cases where giving up does administer to other people, it's mostly about uh, addressing uh, their needs and their pain. It's not about achieving positives for them. It's not about helping them become more productive or helping them to lift themselves up. So that's one important point about showing, I think, that altruism is not about achieving any positive good. But I have one last point that I think helps show the same point. And here it's useful, I think, to think about well, what is the source of positive good? What is the source of value that it would take to create it if, if you wanted to. Uh, as the example of the tech entrepreneurs shows, I think it's the human mind, human ingenuity. But now think about how altruism regards your mind. Think, for example, if there is a member of your family who's uh, in his own way of putting it perpetually down on his luck. He's always getting into trouble. He's always wasting away his money and he's asking you for some money. And now you have to think, should I give it to him? And while, you know, I think a, uh, a self-interested person who cares about his loved ones will often have reason to help them out, you think in this particular case, this, uh, the black sheep of your family is going to blow all the money on drugs or otherwise not spend it wisely. And see, so you don't want to give it to him unless you put some conditions on it, unless you know he's going to spend it in, on things that will be productive for him and not on, on wasteful things. Now, I think that the attitude that most altruists are going to have toward a person who wants to put conditions on the money that he gives to someone because he's concerned that the person's going to misspend it, altruists are going to say, how dare you? You don't have the right to decide how this person's going to spend your money. Your job is to help administer to people who need, who have needs. And this person has needs. And so your job is to, is to submit to his demands. That's, I think, the typical altruist attitude. And you see this not just in everyday situations like with the member of your family, but I think you see it even on the geopolitical level uh, where various foreign countries who receive aid from the United States often don't want to submit to conditions on the aid either. Uh, sometimes international institutions will say, well, we want to only give this aid if you'll reform your economy, if you'll free it up, if you'll cut the regulations, if you'll cut taxes. And again, the common altruist response is to say, that's immoral. These, these, these countries who are giving money to poor countries don't have the right to put strings on it. They just should give it away because their job is to meet other people's needs and demands. But if you think about what this means, it means that your own judgment of what's best, even for other people, is regarded as irrelevant. And so the altruists who demand this are not only asking that you sacrifice your money, they're not just asking that you sacrifice your time, they're asking that you sacrifice your own judgment and your own values. If you think productiveness is a value and you, you want to encourage someone else to be productive by giving money to them with certain conditions attached, 
The altruists say you don't have the right to do that, which means they're asking you to sacrifice your judgment and your values. Those are both functions of your mind. What the self really is deep down is your mind. It's the thing that makes judgments and thinks and feels and chooses. And when altruists say you don't have the right to do that, even when uh, you're giving money to other people, that's a sign that they really want you to sacrifice your mind. Yourself is not just a bundle of desires. It is the thing that makes you who you are. And fundamentally that for human beings is the rational mind. Um, ask me questions about how I think this fits in uh, with the whole effective altruism movement, I could say more. But in the interest of time, I want to start to wrap up. And I would just want to share with you, I think, a relevant quotation from Ayn Rand. This is from uh, her book, Atlas Shrugged, from a speech toward the end of it, where she uh, warns us to be on, lookout, on the lookout against the very calls for self-sacrifice that I've just been describing. And some of you will recognize some of these words, though you don't often see the rest of them. She says, in the name of the best within you, do not sacrifice this world to those who are its worst. In the name of the values that keep you alive, do not let your vision of man be distorted by the ugly, the cowardly, the mindless in those who have never achieved his title. And she goes on, but to win the world you desire requires a total break with the doctrine uh, that man is a sacrificial animal who exists for the pleasure of others. Fight for the virtue of your pride. Fight for the essence of that which is man, for a sovereign, rational mind. Fight with a radiant certainty and, your, and the absolute rectitude of knowing that yours is the morality of life. And we could talk more about what she means by the morality of life and why she regards altruism, by contrast, as the morality of death. Okay. So a couple then a key takeaway points from what I've just discussed. First point that I've tried to stress is that when Ayn Rand rejects altruism, when she says it's bad and even evil, she's not rejecting benevolence. She's not rejecting generosity. She's not rejecting love for loved ones. Altruism is not the same thing as any of those. Altruism is the demand for sacrifice of the self. And Rand definitely rejects that. And I think her reasons for doing it are compelling. Uh, also, another reason for rejecting it is that altruism isn't actually aimed at achieving any positive values. It's instead aimed at the destruction and sacrifice of the source of all values, the values that have created prosperity in the world. Uh, and that source is the, is the rational mind. Altruists really, when they talk about sacrificing the self, what they really want is for you to sacrifice your own judgment, your own values, which is to say, your mind. So if you're interested in learning more about Ayn Rand's critique of altruism, I'll point you to two first uh, primary resources. One is Atlas Shrugged, which I've read a few passages from already. Uh, the second half of the big speech toward the end of that book, which I think is read less frequently than the first half, is where she has the most to say about why altruism is, as she calls it, the morality of death. And I think it's an underappreciated part of the speech. And yet relates to many of the events of the novel. So I definitely encourage you to take a close look at that. But also, uh, since, uh, there's, since Rand has this view that altruism is evil, obviously the compliment to that is that selfishness as she understands it is actually a good thing. And so for more on that idea, please take a look at her book, The Virtue of Selfishness. I'll also point you quickly just to a couple of essays uh, or text resources. One is if you go to the Ayn Rand lexicon, which can be found at courses.aynrand.org slash lexicon, you can look up her the entry on altruism. This contains a number of passages from a number of different essays by Rand on this topic. And if you're interested in learning more about how these concepts apply to some of the real world uh, issues that I brought up in this webinar, uh, I wrote an essay on Peter Singer and his views about altruism and his views about Bill Gates. This is an essay on our publication, New Ideal, called The Man Biting the Hands of Creators Who Feed the World. You can go to bit.ly slash man hyphen biting if you uh, want to find out more, or just go to New Ideal and search for Peter Singer. You'll find it there. Otherwise, uh, now is a chance for me to tell you about next week's webinar, 
This will be hosted by my colleague from ARI, Keith Lockich. Topic and the question that he'll be looking at is why are principles important in life? And if you'd like to get more information on these webinars or register for them to get notifications of when they're happening, you can go to courses.einrand.org slash webinars or bit.ly slash ARI hyphen webinars, which is a little shorter. Um, last of all, uh, let me do a quick poll because uh, before we turn to the Q&A, the goal of this webinar series is to introduce uh, some of Ayn Rand's ideas to people who aren't already familiar with them. And we want to know if we're actually reaching that target audience. And so I'm just going to uh, launch this poll where you can uh, share with me uh, how, what kind of familiarity you currently have with Rand, whether you've already read a lot of her works, whether you've only read a little, we'd really appreciate your feedback on this. And I'll just, I'll leave this poll up for a little while um, as I uh, move on uh, to the next and last point, which is just to let you know that if you have another question that you think would be good for us to discuss in a future webinar, please send us a suggestion at webinars at einrand.org. And we're really interested in hearing what kind of life questions you have, or especially interested in kind of questions that are of, of general relevance to the, a general audience. So uh, with that then, I think I'm gonna turn things over to you, see how many people in the audience would like to ask questions. And I'm gonna be joined in just a moment by my colleague Ilan Giorno, who's gonna moderate those questions. And, um, I should probably stop sharing my screen right now so that you can see both of us. And how do I stop sharing? There, stop share. Okay. All right. So, hi, Elon. Hey, Ben. How are you? Good. So, we have some questions. And uh, before we dive into those, I thought I would take moderator's privilege and maybe push you a little with some maybe devil's advocate questions. Um, sure. Because uh, I think um, these might come up for people listening. So, the first one is you, you know, you started with uh, there, are, there are arguments people have made in the history of philosophy for the ethics of altruism, but you put those aside. And then you gave us sort of the, the perspective that Ayn Rand gives. What do you think are, I get that you don't think those arguments are good, but what do you think are the best arguments or who has made those arguments? So if people are interested in seeing the other side of this this position, which figures or, or could you summarize them in sort of a capsule for us? Sure. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a long story in many ways, and there's many different figures and there's a long philosophical history. But... I'll just give one example, which is Peter Singer, who I mentioned a couple of times in, in the webinar. He has a famous argument uh, where he says, if you were walking down the street one day and you saw a child who was in a very shallow pool, but the child was about to drown, and the worst that would happen to you is if you would just wade into the pool and get your pants wet, wouldn't you... Uh, wouldn't you help out the child? Uh, wouldn't most people regard it as monstrous if you didn't just because you didn't get, want to get your pants wet? And I mean, when I read something like that, I say, sure, I'd help out the child. It's a, this, the pants, that's a pretty small price to pay to save a life of someone who might be of value to me in the world someday. But what Singer says is, if you're willing to save that child and you think morality uh, uh, demands that you do it, then by the same logic, you should be willing to spend money to save the lives of many different children and people otherwise who are starving or otherwise in threat of death all the way around the world. And his idea is that according to morality, it shouldn't make a difference whether the person's right in front of you or they're around the world because morality is about being neutral with respect to your own interests, with respect to your own situation it's agent neutral, which is to say that it, it concerns the interests of people all considered completely equally. And that's where I think he uh, makes quite an unjustified leap because the very idea that that's what morality is all about, that morality is this kind of agent neutral view from nowhere is I think asserted simply as a matter of faith. It's asserted because as I said, there's a long 
philosophical tradition of philosophers who make this point, and so it's it's a commonly held view among philosophers. One which I should add is, uh, and which Singer admits, is fed by various religious traditions, but it's one which I don't think any rational justification can be given for. And as Ayn Rand said in one of her essays, no earthly reason has ever been given for this viewpoint. Okay, um, just one other moderator's privilege kind of question, if, if that's all right. Um, sure. And, and I think this will build into some of the questions that are coming in. When you say uh, effective altruism, and, and we, I think we should get into that because there are some questions on it. Um, you said that earlier in your presentation that uh, altruists are not about achieving any good, they're about it, giving something up. So how do you, how do you think of an, a, you know, a philanthropist, someone who's earned a lot of money and wants to help people um, giving money, for example, to a school district? So this is actually what uh, Mark Zuckerberg did, I think, in New Jersey. And I think the premise there, or at least that's how it was reported, he, he thinks that improving the schools in New Jersey will lift up so many kids. And so there's a kind of, so seeing, seen from the outside, you know, in a non-sophisticated way, I guess, that does seem like he's giving up money and he's conceiving of that as this is going to do good for people. So how, how do you think of that from the perspective you've been presenting to us? Well, as I indicated at the beginning of the presentation, I don't think altruism is the same thing as generosity or, or benevolence. And so one can have good self-interested reasons for helping other people. And I mentioned uh, helping out your friends and your loved ones, but I think that can apply more generally, where especially if somebody has uh, you know, achieved a great surplus in their life and uh, there's a kind of overflowing effect of that by which they uh, demonstrate uh, their own efficacy and 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 have interest in the well-being of their fellow man that can be proper but uh, when you look at these cases uh, that you mentioned various uh, tech entrepreneurs who uh, focus a lot on giving away their vast wealth uh, to philanthropic causes the question that's crucial is what is their motivation why are they doing it and if any substantial part of the reason is they're doing it because they feel guilty for the wealth that they've created. They're doing that because they're under the influence of altruistic philosophy. And I think that's bad. I think that's wicked actually. And uh, they, they should be proud of what they've created and they should be proud of using what they've created uh, for their own purposes. If they see one of their philanthropic causes, as in some way or another complementing one of their own selfish purposes and they they recognize it as such then i think it's great but i do think that many of today's contemporary philanthropists are in fact under the sway of altruism and are are giving things away for the wrong kinds of reasons okay uh so let's turn to some of the questions that have come up um this came up as a comment on facebook but i think it is there's a question here that's worth just if I'll, I'll rephrase it as a question. So early in the presentation, you said that um, the con you know, love for one's friends or having a spouse and so on is compatible with self-interest. And you said that that can be selfish. So the, the question or the comment was, differentiate selfishness from narcissism. That's funny because we were just having a discussion about this at another webinar earlier today. Um, the big difference... I would say is that the narcissist is someone who is, I mean, in one sense, they're not, in one sense, they're focused on their self. They think they're the only person who exists in the universe and they didn't deny the obvious fact that there are other people out there. Uh, but the problem is that other people are actually uh, an important value in all of our lives. They do exist. And to deny that and to ignore the value that one can get from relationships with other people is, is an unhealthy and actually at the end of the day, contrary to one's self-interest. The narcissist is someone who thinks it doesn't matter what he does to other people or how he alienates them uh, from his or her life. Uh, but he's, I think, on a proper view of self-interest going to end up suffering for that. Uh, other people can uh, provide uh, friendship, they can teach you things, they can provide trade, and you need to be an honest and 
uh, and value-oriented person if you're going to benefit from those kinds of relationships. Let's dive uh, into this issue of effective altruism, which you raise. I, I, I'm not sure how many people listening uh, have heard of it. You, you gave us kind of a sketch of it. So we have a question from Nandan who asks, how, did you, how do you differentiate between what you defined as effective altruism versus public good? And then he goes on, there's always a thin line between what's effective altruism versus crony capitalism, which what's your take on that? So it seems like there's sort of multiple parts. Maybe just t tell us more about the first part. Right. I don't quite get the part of the question about uh, crony capitalism or the connection there, but um, so just to say more about what effective altruism is supposed to be. Uh, it's, it's an interesting turn of phrase because it does imply that there's ineffective altruism. And in fact, since this is only a very recent movement, it implies that most altruism up until recently has been ineffective, which uh, is an interesting admission already, I think, on its own, especially in light of some of the things I've said about what kind of practices are praised by altruists. So um, obviously, altruists have, uh, have often uh, tried to pitch their viewpoint as one which does in fact benefit other people. I've suggested that that's sort of a rationalization. That's a, that's a, um, a facade for what's really just a concern for sacrifice for its own sake. Um, but one of the rationalizations that the altruists will often give is that you need to sacrifice for the sake of the public good or the public welfare. Uh, and I think it's uh, notable that uh, if you, can give any kind of a rational definition to that kind of concept where it means something like what actually benefits each individual, what kind of system or setup or policies benefit each individual in the society. I go back to the point about, well, what has actually done it? Has it been people who've just sacrificed for its own sake or is it people who've actually uh, pursued their own interests by offering and creating values? And it's, I think it's interesting that the effective altruists portray themselves as the ones who, no, we're really actually concerned with what's going to create real benefits for people. Uh, that's why we want you to go and do research about which are the most effective charities. But what I think is interesting is that it never enters into the equation whatsoever for them. Whether if you do the research, what you'll find will actually benefit the most people is engaging in production and trade. And in fact, they, to this day, uh, con condemn producers and traders for continuing to quote unquote hoard their wealth. Uh, Peter Singer wrote a book advocating for his philosophy and he had Bill Gates write the preface to the book where Bill Gates says, I like this effective altruism idea. It's what motivates my philanthropy. But then in an essay that's attached at the end of the book, Singer says that Bill Gates doesn't give enough. Uh, and I think this, this, gives the lie to the notion that there's some real concern for empirical evidence uh, that effective altruism so-called has that other forms of altruism don't. And if anything, the most consistent altruists criticize effective altruism by saying, look, if you were really altruistic, if you were really interested in sacrifice, you wouldn't say go into investment banking in order to make a lot of money to give away because that's still reaffirming the capitalist system. What you should really be concerned with doing is smashing the capitalist system. And that's what some of the biggest socialist critics of effective altruism will often say. And I think that really shows that what's really at the heart uh, is the demand to, to smash producers and to sacrifice the mind. Well, let's turn to this question from Ricardo. Uh, he asks, uh, suppose a father pays for his children's college education. Is that an altruistic act? Uh, especially when he could be spending this money on other things more valuable to him. Well, uh, without dwelling on the particulars, let me say something about the general issue here, which is that if you're a rational person who thinks about why you want to have children and you do have a choice, this is not something that you're forced to do, You'll do it presumably because you think that the process of raising a child to become a rational being who pursues his own happiness is something that will add meaning to your own life. 
And if that's the choice you've made, that involves a commitment. It means you're committing to 18 plus years of raising the child and to actually working to see that he develops the tools and skills necessary to pursue his happiness. And that may, it certainly includes a good amount of education, uh, whether or not in, in particular cases it includes paying for college is, a, is an interesting case. Certainly in many cases, uh, a parent who wants their child to thrive will want to send their child to, to be educated in higher education. Not always, but the question is, especially if he could be doing better things with it. Well, if it's really true, he could be doing better things with it. Uh, if it's really true, he should probably put the child up for adoption, let someone else uh, raise him. Uh, but if the person's actually thought through it, if they've, if they've had children for a good reason, then it, I just I simply challenge the notion that in the most relevant cases, there are better things that they could be doing with it. If, if they are raising a child for good reasons, then paying for the child's education is going to be in their self-interest to do. So if I could just build on that. So one quick recommendation for people listening and watching today, if you haven't, uh, if you missed it, you go back and rewatch or listen on our podcast channel on YouTube, a uh, presentation that Keith Lockish did on uh, sacrifice. I think the, the title was, Does Love Sac Require Sacrifice? Um, so that's just a suggestion for people interested in that topic, because judging from where the question is coming from. But let me ask you, Ben, uh, I find Ayn Rand's analysis of sacrifice really illuminating, and it's not really the way people think of it generally. So maybe you can just sort of con give us sort of the conventional understanding of the term and then how she clarifies it, because I, th I find that, I think people might find that really illuminating. Sorry, I, I missed a part of your question because I was looking at the chat. You were asking about the meaning of, of a sacrifice, according yeah, to Rand? I was going to suggest that you contrast her view with the conventional way. So people talk about, well, you know, someone went to medical school, so they sacrificed all these years of their life. And, you know, and then they also talk about sacrifice in this, in, you know, this is what Mother Teresa is doing. And, and so, but I, I think Ayn Rand has a lot to clarify on this. Yeah, well, one thing I can say to start off with is that uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Keith Lockage, did a, did a talk, uh, did a webinar just a, a month or two ago on this very issue. Yeah, I, I was I just mentioning that. Uh, the, the talk was, does life require yeah. sacrifice? And so that's one thing to look at. But um, the, the essence of the answer here is that there's a big difference between sacrifice and investment. Uh, the way people often use the word sacrifice packages together uh, rational investment, where you are paying the price for the pursuit of your values, but for selfish reasons with giving things up uh, for no greater return. And part of the reason why altruism has any appeal is precisely because it uses this package, because people recognize that investment in business, in education, in your relationships is important because they assume that that's important than these other things that are associated with investment by using this word sacrifice. Well, they must be important too. But Ayn Rand's point is there's a fundamental uh, distinction between investment, which involves surrendering a lesser value for a greater value, and sacrifice, which involves surrendering a greater value for what is in fact a, a lesser value or no value at all. And those need to be unpackaged. Uh, and so it's never a good idea to say you're making sacrifices for your children whom you love. If you really love them, what you're doing is paying the price of an investment in their future, which you see as an investment in your own happiness. Yeah, and so just to take the flip side of that, so, and I think this is an example Rand uses, if you care more about having you know, a new luxury car than having your children eat, then giving them food would be a sacrifice. But that, but that, there's a different issue there. There's the person who has these, these strange value priorities. But I guess the yeah, other the thing, sacrifice to a person who's got an irrational set of values. Yes. Yeah, I think we can agree to that. But I think the other thing that this brings up, which is helpful for thinking about this, I think a lot of times people are confused about sacrifice and altruism and what it means to be a good person, partly because their own values aren't things they reflect a lot about. Some of them are things they've absorbed. Some of them are things they've chosen and thought about. But in the end, they have a kind of a, uh, they don't really have a cons uh, an explicit hierarchy of things that really matter to them that they've thought about. And so it's difficult to see, okay, well, 
I want to go out to the party tonight, but I also need to study for my, you know, medical school entrance exam. Which one am I going to do? Well, which one do you value most? Just sort of what is your, your long-term self-interest here? So, so I think people get tripped up that way. And one of the things that's helpful is to think about what really matters to you over the span of a lifetime, not just in the moment or how you feel uh, in uh, today or tomorrow. Let's go back to uh, some of the questions from our viewers. Uh, we have some follow-up on Facebook. I'll get to that. And, but let's take this one from Emily. I think this is more uh, going back to earlier in the presentation. Where are young people most exposed to altruist ideas? Is it through their education, religious beliefs? And I'll just add to that. Um, sort of maybe you can give us a, a, a helpful way to, to detect what are some of the forms this comes up in for people. Okay, well, I mean, I, I haven't done like an empirical survey of where this happens the most, but I did mention, I don't think it's because they're reading altruist philosophers, uh, not in most cases, where it is more common is going to be in more indirect forms. And, and I think Emily has indicated them already somewhat in her question. I'm certainly religion is not the only, but a major source of influence here. Uh, it's it's uh, various Judeo-Christian religions which ask us to turn the other cheek, uh, to uh, love our enemy. Uh, these are forms of sacrifice of our values. And of course, uh, ultimately for religion, the idea is you're supposed to sacrifice your worldly concerns for the sake of God, but that same core moral notion is very easily generalized uh, outside of a religious framework and into a secular one when we talk about sacrificing for the sake of other people or sacrificing for the sake of society or the public good or the proletariat. And so uh, obviously there are various political doctrines like socialism, which, which take the same core moral insight uh, over from earlier religious notions. And uh, so wherever there is religious influence, wherever there is the influence of uh, the socialist left, and that could be for everything from Sunday sermons to your newspaper column to obviously things that you hear from professors, either religious or secular at various universities, uh, that's going to be a source of altruism. But I mean, you could probably go back to even more primitive forms of influence any time a parent tells his or her child not to think for her, him or herself, but to listen to me, to believe and to obey my commands without giving reasons, uh, the child is then being asked to sacrifice his or her own mind. And I think that that's the root, that kind of... Uh, that kind of encouragement of reverence for authority, the authority of other people. That's the kind of psychological route that I think uh, much of this uh, moral uh, edifice of altruism is then imposed on top of. Uh, and this might be super controversial and I don't want to wade into it, but let me just suggest that one other source of where people are exposed to altruism uh, in, in a form that I don't think people would recognize is that uh, I think that the environmental movement needs to be understood. I think this was one of Ayn Rand's really insightful observations about the culture of the time is there, is, there are scientific questions that are bound up in the questions of environmentalism and what to do about pollution and things like that. There, there are scientific questions there, including climate change and so forth. But what, when you step away and you think about the political ideological phenomenon, it, it needs to be understood as a, an, ide, an ism, as a kind of ideology that is sort of borrowing and using scientific claims and issues. And when you think of it as an ism, as environmentalism, one of the defining features of it is the, the, the command that we sacrifice for Mother Earth, that we sacrifice for endangered species. Now, we, we might have a webinar on this because I think there's a lot of issues to unpack here and you might not be totally convinced by what I'm saying, but if you think about the way in which people behave in response to the environmental uh, injunctions they hear all the time, 
it is a kind of secular moral, a secular religion in the sense that it, it has a, a very uh, firm ethical command. We have to use cloth bags instead of plastic bags when we go to the grocery store. We have to cut down our emissions. Now, there is a whole story that is told, and, and we can explore this further, about this is actually to our benefit. But I, I think that's debatable, and at least I'm not convinced by it. And the deeper issue is that um, in terms of how people are exposed to altruism, well, environmentalism has gone mainstream in a way that people sort of 40 years ago, I don't think quite anticipated. And it's everywhere. It's baked into most of our experiences, corporate life, schooling. And so if you're thinking about how kids exposed to this idea that they have to sacrifice for some other sort of outside purpose, I think this is one of the dominant forms of it. Now, again, I'm, I'm trying to couch my, argue, my, my response here in a way that um, recognizes not everyone agrees necessarily with the position I'm taking, but uh, I, what I want to suggest is that there is a form of an ism here that is essentially a, uh, pushing this kind of doctrine. Okay, let's go back. Uh, there was, I, want to get, I want to make sure we get in these two questions um, so Nicolette asks, uh, if altruism is considered a virtue, uh, then what is the morality of the person receiving the sacrifices? Maybe you can elaborate on that. Yeah, that is, there's a bit of a paradox there. Uh, if it's good to give up, why would it be good to receive the recipients, uh, to receive what's being given up? Uh, and uh, you might look at that and say, well, this is just a contradiction involved in altruism. And, and so, aha, I found a contradiction in altruism and that refutes it. But the way that Ayn Rand addresses this question in uh, the speech that I mentioned before in, in, in Atlas Shrugged, she raises the question, she notes the paradox, but then she says, there's actually a deeper logic to that kind of what looks like an inconsistency because uh, the most consistent altruists will say, no, it's fine uh, for those, uh, for, for the people who are desperately needy to accept your sacrifice, provided that they didn't actually do anything to earn it, provided that they don't, they didn't actually produce it, provided that they don't have any ability, provided that they have tons of need. What she thinks this shows is that altruism most consistently practiced is again not about actually helping people about achieving any positive values it's about a kind of worship of the zero is the way she puts it it's about the idea that the, those who have the ability those who have uh, who are productive achievers have to give that up to those who aren't and who don't uh, those who have uh, those who have something of value have to surrender it to those who have nothing of value. And that's part of the reason why she calls it a morality of death, because she thinks she thinks that altruism is primarily concerned with this sort of worship of the zero, worship of need and destruction of value for the sake of that lack of value. So there is a deeper logic behind what looks like a paradox, if you, and another reason I think it's good to look at the second half of that speech toward the end of Atlas Shrugged, clarifies a lot of this. Okay, um, we so on, I'm trying to keep an eye on the Facebook viewers and thanks for your comments and, and responses there. I think uh, someone is asking if you would go back a little to discuss in, in the time we have left. Uh, can you respond to the Peter Singer example that you outlined? So for people just joining us, um, you, you gave the example of Peter Singer and the child drowning in a shallow pond. So the questioner is uh, asking, could you elaborate on that? Um, how, what difference does it make uh, whether the child is in front of you or 3,000 miles away? And, and, and just, and I would add to this, how, how do you think, how, what are some leads to thinking about that kind of uh, puzzle, which I think is, a lot of people find that very challenging to, to, to handle. Right. Well, I mean, in from one perspective, there's, there's not much difference if there's a, one child in danger of dying in front of you and other children in danger of dying somewhere else. The only difference is geography in that case. Uh, but that actually, in aggregate, that turns out to be a big difference because if you concerned yourself with all the different children and all the different people all over the world, 
who are in a similar circumstance, it, it would now obviously become a major cost and a major sacrifice, therefore, to you. Whereas if it's just one person and you don't, it's, there's no uh, great cost to be paid for helping them out, then all things being equal, it's, it's better for your life to see another person succeed in life. If you take all of them in aggregate who are in a similar situation, you spend all of your time doing nothing but going around the world searching for children drowning in pools, that will obviously be a greater cost. And especially if it's on the principle that simply because of the fact that they have a need, they have a demand on your life. Uh, if it's not on that principle, if it's I can afford it in this one case to make this to help this one person out, that's a very different principle. Um, I once was in an academic seminar about Peter Singer's views and uh, the author of the paper was with us. She had written a paper critiquing Singer and she said, well, one thing you do is if you find out that there's a place where there's just lots of children drowning in pools, maybe rather than going around and saving them all, you should be wondering, how did it get to be that things, everyone was drowning in pools all the time? And in, that's a good point. And uh, uh, I think it goes back to the point about the difference between Mother Teresa and Bill Gates is that uh, she was basically concerned with saving children in pools wherever they could be. But uh, Bill Gates uh, and people like him, entrepreneurs and capitalists, are interested in solving the problems of uh, material survival. And they're interested in creating values that make our lives easier and, in effect, eliminate all the pools that we might be falling into. All right. So... In the time we have, I wanted two rapid fire questions. You ready? Okay, okay. so uh, Stephen asks, would Rancy use for someone like a secret serviceman? So in the sense that they're altruistically taking a bullet for the president, would there be some lives more important to humanity than others? So basically putting your life at risk as part of your job for someone seen as more important. So the rapid fire question is about taking a bullet. I get it. Um, <laughs> she would say that is not necessarily altruistic. If you see, if uh, there's many jobs that require taking risks, the point of the job is not to die. The point is to live and to do your job. Uh, but you may be willing to take the risk, if, especially if you see your values at stake and if you don't want to live in a kind of world uh, where your freedom can be threatened, as if in the case of where you're a soldier. Uh, and certainly if you think that the office of the presidency is some contributor to that, you might be willing to take a certain risk, though. It's hard to motivate oneself with the current lot of presidents we've had lately. I wouldn't go into the Secret Service these days, but in, in the past, maybe. Okay. Uh, next rapid-fire question. Uh, Sam on Facebook asks, are the advocates of altruism actually altruistic themselves? Are they altruists themselves? Uh, the people like Peter Singer uh, try to be, they try to give away substantial amounts of their income and live only on the barest minimum uh, necessary. Um, of course, they often also say themselves that they don't think they give enough and then they're, and, and pre as if to preempt the criticism. But I think what this shows is that this, this altruistic viewpoint is impossible to live, live on consistently. And, and it's, of course, the conception of morality that contributes to the idea that there's an opposition between morality and practicality, because you can't live on it consistently without pretty much uh, giving up your life. And so it's the idea that's really at the root of various uh, forms of original sin that say, well, nobody's perfect. We're all sinners. As long as we're alive and breathing, we're not being perfectly altruistic uh, and uh, the thing to do there is not to uh, separate morality and practicality. It's to question the moral notion that goes into that paradox. All right. Uh, let's see. Do we have time for one more rapid fire question? Uh, Two minutes. It's yeah. got to be really rapid. Yeah. Well, you know, I think what we should, we have a lot of questions here we didn't get to. And thanks. Let me just say as the person moderating the questions, thanks for all your questions. If we don't get to them in the live uh, webinar, we do read everything and they often trigger new question, new webinars that we will uh, present. So with that, let me uh, plug uh, a request for you all. If you have suggestions for a webinar, and it could just be the question that's burning now, uh, please send them to us. Uh, our address is webinars at ironrand.org and you can find us uh, on Facebook as well if you want to submit it that way. 
Um, so I want to thank everyone for their questions. Thank, thank you, uh, Ben, as well for the presentation. It, thanks, uh, it was very informative and, and valuable. Uh, I just hand it back to you to wrap up. Yeah. Uh, do I need to put a, something up on the screen? I don't think so. I think we can just say goodbye and uh, thanks, Ilan, and thank you again all for your questions. And I, I hope uh, we'll get more feedback from you in the future about uh, new topics that we can be pursuing. Uh, oh, and, and uh, I'm reminded, yes, I should remind you again about next week's webinar. Again, same time, same place. Uh, Keith Lockich will be talking about the importance of principles in life. So hope to see you all then. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.